There's my other water bottle. Now I know where it went. All right. That's great. Gets to get extra thirsty this time. Hey, my name is Jeremy. Welcome here. We're so glad you're here to worship with us. Thank you, Joe. That was awesome. Loved it. Praise God. That Savior of ours. Wow. Um, if you're just joining us at our church, what we're doing right now is we're going through the book of First Peter. Uh, it's a New Testament letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to some churches in the modern-day country of Turkey, which is ancient Asia Minor. They're about to be persecuted or chased down by the uh, upcoming next emperor, who would be Nero, who would be uh, officially against Christianity and therefore using Christians as torches in his garden and stuff like that, and they were about to have a really hard time. That said, uh, their suffering, their endurance, their persecution... Uh, what we learn from them are principles that we can apply to our lives today. And so even though our situations are a lot different, there are all kinds of amazing takeaways that God has preserved for us in his word to help us endure the daily battles that we face here in the U.S. And so the theme of the series, you've probably seen on some of the big banners and stuff like that is joy ahead like the emphasis is not on suffering it's not focus in on your misery and just be downtrodden but instead it's to hope in the future that's essentially what hope is hope is looking to the future it's focus on the future like our airline pilot aligning her flight it is looking to the joy that is coming ahead and so despite the twists or turns the ups or downs the bumps the bruises all the bad stuff along the way the point is first peter is telling us is because of jesus and his resurrection that regardless of what we go through the outcome is assured and it's going to be all good in the end there's tremendous joy ahead that's the message of first peter well you take that then and you say okay so now how do i apply it on a daily basis there's a lot of different stuff but one of the most basic questions we ask as human beings is how do i respond when people treat me poorly what do i do when i get the short end of the stick just curious random non-scientific survey is there anyone in here who has ever felt like they've been mistreated all right there's, there's your sign. The reality is, in our lives, that will happen. When First Peter approaches it, he says, look, not if you suffer, not, you know, perhaps you might, but when you are slandered, when you're accused, when you are taken advantage of. The reality of sin is that everybody in our world is broken, and everybody hurts people, and we're all, we've all been hurt. And so what do we do then when we are taken advantage of? Or mistreated and so that's the question that this passage goes after today the one I hope to help you answer and not just answer from a heady standpoint but one that you can apply to your life as well when I hear for example there's a Bible verse I really like to quote it's called uh, it's in Romans twelve seventeen. do not become do not over do not become <laughs> that's what I get for trying to quote <laughs> Something about not being overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good. That's the point. Overcome evil with good. Well, that's a command, and it's like overcome. And so I think sometimes the way I've mistakenly interpreted that in my life is, all right, overcome. Like, boom, just overpower. Just boom, overtake it. Strength, raw force, determination, will. And as I 
studied this passage, what I realized, it's, it's not just raw force, it's not brute strength, but there's this thing that underlies the ability to overcome evil with good. And it's that thing that's the key linchpin to allow you to do it. And so let's see what First Peter then says is the thing that will help us do that, to actually overcome. And it may not be what we think. First Peter 3 Verses 9 and following, it says this. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Under normal circumstances, it doesn't happen. However, things aren't always normal. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts sanctify or honor or set apart as holy Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is not far away, but instead that is right there in you. It is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when you are slandered, When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For, here's a contrast. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that's what God should will, than, on the other hand, to suffer for doing evil. And here's the linchpin that holds it all together for us as Christians. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Here's the exchange. The righteous for the unrighteous. So what do I do when people treat me poorly? Well, basically, that depends on one thing. And that one thing is this, is whether you're a Christian or not. If you're a Christian, there's a different starting place. But if you're not a Christian, I would probably ask you that question. Well, what should you do? In my mind, as a Christian, I would I would think that a non-Christian, if you're if you're in that spot, would reason like this. Well, if I don't believe in God then who is there to ensure justice? If I receive the short end of the stick or I've been treated unjustly, I guess the only person to really make sure that I get even is me. And therefore, I need to follow up and make sure that I am reconciled or I I make things right. And all of a sudden, we're even. And so if you're a non-Christian, in a sense, it's really on you to get even. However, if you are a Christian, you have an entirely different world view, and that world view begins not with you, but this higher power that set the world in order to whom everyone will give an account. And if that is the case, and you know that he is in control, and he is in command, and at some point everyone will be judged by him, and will, he will separate the good from the bad, and he'll look at all of our works and approve or disapprove. If you know that that is the case, then what you are hoping for in the future is that that deity, that God, will in fact ensure justice. 
And if that is the case, then you also know it's not on you to make sure that justice happens. In fact, you would even go so far as to say, if you do try to enforce justice, you won't do a good job of it because you're not powerful enough to make sure that everyone is treated exactly as they should be. And so what you do is you yourself don't seek vengeance, but instead you wait for the future when the just judge will. It's a different starting place. And let me dig into that just a little bit deeper because I think for us as Christians now living after Christ, the way it works is this. It begins with an exchange. How we respond to evil begins with an exchange. Let me show you what I mean. If you think about a normal exchange, just an average exchange, nothing fancy. Say, for example, uh, baseball cards or fishing gear or I don't know. Let me ask you, what else do you trade for? What would one trade for? I'm thinking of all these guy things, but surely there's other stuff out there. What would one say, hey, I'll swap you this for that for? A purse. You would trade purses, okay. Shoes, would you ever, shoes maybe? I don't know. No, no shoes. Okay. What else? Recipes. Good. Very. Thank you. Yeah, I'll swap you a recipe. I've seen that done. I'm glad you said that. I would have never thought of that. All right. What else? Books. Yes. What'd you say? Makeup. Okay. Sorry? Cookies. Okay. Very good. Yeah, usually I don't give anything back. I just receive cookies. I would have never thought of that. There's lots of things you could exchange, and you know how it works. You start off with, oh, there's something I want. I don't have that. How do I get that? In a normal way, perhaps in our society, you might say, I'll buy it. But if you don't have any money or you don't want to spend your money, you might say, I still want that. Maybe there's something I have that I don't want that I might be able to exchange. So, for example, you might trade one thing for another, and this exchange happens, and you're happy, and they're happy, and everyone goes away just right. That is an exchange. And in reality, in our society, in our economy, there's all kinds of exchanges happening every day. There's stock trades, real estate trades, all kinds of swapping deals going back and forth. And anytime you actually buy something, that's an exchange as well. Money is just our form of currency. The thing that we say has a certain amount of value based on our economy and our government and yada yada. And at the end of the day, we say this is worth this much and we'll trade it for this and we make the exchange that's a basic exchange but in christian thought in our worldview in the biblical um, perspective what happens is there is one exchange that is greater than all the other exchanges ever combined like every single exchange or trade or deal that's ever been made doesn't add up to the single exchange that exchange of course that i'm talking about is the cross, but let me dig into exchanges just a little bit more, and I'll show you what I mean. So you know a basic exchange. That's how it works. One thing that you trade for something else that someone has. But what if you don't have anything to trade? What if what you want to offer isn't enough? What if your goods are no good? In that case, you need someone else to help you. And so I think I can illustrate that this morning. Um, Malachi and Nora, are you guys paying attention? You're not paying attention, Malachi? Okay, well, pay attention now. Come on up, buddy. I got something for you. Come on. Do you mind? Nora, you can come up too, because I don't want to 
leave anybody out. Come on up. Come on. I need your help. Are you coming? You're not coming. Mom is pushing. All right. Come, please. Hey, man, how's it going? I like, you look very nice today. Yep. Nora, you look nice as well. Did you borrow those shoes this morning? No, didn't borrow them. Okay, good. Nala, that's why I messed it up. Sorry, I was going Nora over here. It's actually Nala over there. It was my fault, not yours. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. See, your brother helped you out. What do you know? All right, I've got one microphone for each of you. Here you go. Don't say anything yet. Can't say anything yet. All right, got it? All right, now, once I ask you a question, it's not that hard of a question. Don't be nervous. Is there anything in your pockets this morning? Do you have anything in your pockets? You can answer in the mic. Yes or no? No. No. Do you have any money with you? No. No money. Okay. Are you thirsty? No. You're not thirsty. (laughs) Pretend that you're thirsty. Okay. Oh, man. Oh, boy. I need new volunteers. (laughs) All right. Are you thirsty? Your brother says he's not thirsty. Okay. All right. Good. Good. All right. Now, we have some thirsty kiddos up here with no money and no means of procuring their own beverage. Now I need to look out in the audience and see if I can find anyone who is very kind and generous, carrying perhaps a little cash on them, and also comfortable with sharing with other people. I see Mr. Kunzelman looking into his wallet. We'll let you check and see, Mr. Kunzelman. What do you have? You got it covered? How much is there? It's only one dollar? You have two dollars. Do you have any more than two dollars? <laughs> I don't know if the Coke machines are a dollar twenty-five or if the... how much we have here? Twenty. I don't think we take twenties. <laughs> nope, they don't work. Come on up anyways, we'll give it a try. Come on up, Mike. Alright. Yes, please come on up. Kids, give him a push. <laughs> all right, we need help. Yay, all right. You guys don't know Mr. Kunzelman, but he works in the uh, with the children's ministry all the time, and so he's good with kids. Yep, they know him. All right, so I'm going to be, I'm going to stay. Oh, did you already give the money away? No. Okay, come back over here then. All right, we're going to need your money here in a minute. Um, I'm going to assume that Malachi might get thirsty later in the day, even though he's not thirsty now. Nope, he will never be thirsty. His parents are just laughing at me. They're like, we get this every day. just wait until I get home and then I can have some milk. You can, that's true. But then you hold on to the can and you swap it for your sister for something else you really want. No. no? Okay, never mind. All right, just go along with it, please. Okay, all right. So, if you were to drink something this morning, would you want coffee, hot chocolate, or... A Coca-Cola soda type thing. If you were. I know you're not thirsty. But if you were, hypothetically, (laughs) Um, what would you want? Hot chocolate. Hot chocolate, okay. And now I'm totally confused. Nala, (laughs) what would you like? Water. Water? Water. You are a good girl. Okay, but (laughs) if you were to buy something for someone else and it wasn't water, I think they're... Do we sell water? I don't think we... I don't know. Do we sell water? I don't think we sell Hot chocolate's only a dollar. Hot, will hot chocolate go do? Go the cheapest thing you can. Go with the cheapest. You guess? Would you rather have a Pepsi? Your dad likes Pepsi. No. I'm striking out. All right. So, mm, milk, water, only water. All right, Mike. It's on you, man. 
I don't know if we have water out there or not, but Mr. Kunzelman, will you please go come up with one hot chocolate and some form of water from somewhere? Or, and if our hot chocolate stuff's already put away, surprise them. <laughs> All right. Okay, thank you. I don't need to. I have this. You have uh, to the end of the sermon, but the sooner the better. All right, right, guys, go find your mom and dad. Okay, so the idea that I'm so futilely trying to illustrate here, (laughs) incredibly futilely, is that I was assuming in my mind when I thought this up, this looks awesome. Here's a couple kids who are very thirsty. It's the middle of service. They'll want something to drink. And... um, They don't have any money because they're kids. And so I'll find somebody else who does have money. And that person will go and make a purchase on their behalf. And what happens in that instance is there's still an exchange that's going forth. This person, in our case, Mike Kunzelman, is taking his money and giving it to someone else, acquiring something that these kiddos don't have, and bringing it back and giving it to them. Now, they themselves didn't purchase it. They didn't have what it takes to come up with this Coke. But he did. Do you see where I'm going with this? Here's what happens with... Christians in the cross, if you're a believer in Jesus, what you believe is that we are sinful and fallen and broken and we need help in a major way. So you see that thing out there that you want that you can't get. You're like, I want that. And then you're like, I'll trade for that. And you're like, I got nothing. I'm dirty. I'm fallen. I'm broken. I, I can't buy that. There's nothing in me that will purchase Christ's righteousness. But then somewhere from the outside, not you yourself, but someone else, Jesus sees you, has pity on you, and lowers himself and comes down and pays for your sin, taking it upon himself and exchanges your sin for his righteousness. And in that exchange then, which you had no part of, all of a sudden you're the beneficiary. And you walk around and you're better and you're fed and you're taken care of because Christ paid for you. This is what we mean when we say Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. It wasn't necessarily that we just did something. It was instead that we needed something and he came and did it on our behalf. There was still an exchange. But it wasn't us who did it. And so that, my friends, is what I would say is called the great exchange. This purchase, this payment of Christ's blood is more precious and more valuable than any other payment that has ever been made. So we begin there. We start. You got it, Mike? All right. Do you have water? You can go right over here. I see the Joneses right over here. Raise your hand, Joneses. Well, I want to see what you found out. You got something behind your back. Oh, wow, look at this. Whoa, one for me too. Even better, doing the do. It's going to be a great sermon. (laughs) All right. Good job, Mr. Kunzelman. Thank you. So someone goes and does something on our behalf. Someone goes and does something on their behalf. That's the foundation. That's the great exchange. That's where it starts. And what happens then is when we realize our sinfulness, our fallenness, and our brokenness, and we go to Jesus, and we apologize, and he forgives us, what he gives us is this enormous repository 
of righteousness. Such that, if I push this illustration a little further, Mike's not in the room yet, but uh, Mrs. Kunzelman, you can tell him what I said. Let's pretend that Mike is a billionaire. Okay, let's just pretend. And he decides not to give these kids a Coke, but instead he gives them like a billion dollars. In which case, from then on, all of their friends, anytime they need a drink, are coming to them. And they can say, sure, we can give you from the well that never runs dry. Not living water, but whatever you want. Because we can buy it. And now that we have this huge deposit in us, we can pay for everybody else. That's what happens when we receive Jesus' forgiveness. Because his blood is of infinite value. Because it covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. Because there's nothing we can do to take ourselves out of his hand or out of his grace or out of his love. Then we're so secure, we can just dole it out to everybody else. Then anybody else who needs forgiveness can come to us to get it. And they can even mistreat us and we still got more. Not because it's ours. Remember, we didn't make that exchange. But Christ did and what he exchanged on our behalf pays for everything from then on. And so we go and we get offended and we forgive and we go and we get taken advantage of and we forgive and we go and we get our cheeks slapped and we turn the other one. Why? Because we can do it over and over again because of billions and billions of dollars of forgiveness that Jesus has given us. You see, that great exchange, the big one leads to a whole bunch of little tiny ones after that. It's not us just gritting our teeth and bearing it and pushing through it. But it's saying, hang on, hang on, hold on. Lord, I don't have any more. Can you please pay for that too? Yeah, okay, you got it? You got it? Okay, good. Well, they've, they've, I'm tapped out, Lord. They've used up all I have to give. Can you? Okay, please. Yep, thank you, Jesus. And he has more and more and more. And he can just give not because you can, but because he can. And so your starting place then as a Christian is totally different. You have this infinite wealth of forgiveness that Jesus has given you. And you can draw upon that every time you need to give some to somebody else. The great exchange, our sin for Christ's righteousness, leads to millions of little exchanges. Other people sin and we forgive them and give him his righteousness too. It's not a push-through power grid. It's an exchange based on Jesus and the cross. So if that's the case, then, let me give you four practical ways in the next ten minutes of how to do that. The great exchange leads to the mini exchange, and this is how we can do that. The first of which is this, that, well, actually, I'll just say this. In each of these exchanges, because it's based on the cross... I'm going to point to Jesus. So I'm not going to say, this is how Jeremy does it, or is how a perfect Christian does it, or whatever. Let's just look at how Jesus does it, and we'll try to do that too. So we're going to take four things, and they each start with H. So you have 4H. If you're taking notes, just write down 4Hs. It's not the same 4H that rides horses and stuff like that. It's a different one. But these are the things that will help this morning. The first one, 1 Peter 3.8 1 Peter 3.8 says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and, here's the first H, a tender heart. A tender heart. Now, pointing back at Jesus again, we all know that according to the Gospels, he did a lot of miracles. And sometimes people who are just thrill seekers and stuff like that want to go and say, Hey, show us something cool. Do a trick. We want to see it. But 
All of these things that Jesus did, if you actually read the verse before, are not just tricks. They're intentional either to prove his messianic purpose or power, or it's because he had compassion on the person who came to him. And so many times, you read the text, you look for this, and you'll see, Jesus saw the crowds, and he had compassion on him, or Jesus saw the so-and-so, and he had compassion on him. Over and over again, he has this deep, heartfelt, guttural experience that causes him to act. He felt for other people. The major motivation between Jesus' healing miracles, when he reaches to touch someone, was his compassion. When you feel for someone, you act. If you don't feel it, you don't care. They're just so-and-so way over there and whatever. But if you feel it in your heart of hearts, then you're willing to do something. So the first thing you need to do is be willing to feel. Like have a sensitive heart, have a tender heart, have what this thing calls a tender heart, compassion for those who hurt. Number one, in order to do an exchange, you have to feel for them. If you only feel for yourself, you're like, oh, they offended me. No, 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 no. But if you feel for them, then it's a different response. First, a heart. Second, humility. Humility. I don't know we talk about this a lot as Christians, but it's important we do so because when we hear the word humility, we often think be abased or um, become a doormat or something like that. And when the Bible talks about it, it's entirely different because this word is in the best way applied to Jesus. And Jesus is always the king of the world. He is always worthy of worship. He never becomes a doormat. But out of his compassion, he's willing, despite the fact that he's the king, to lower himself and do what no one else wants to do. That's what humility is. Humility says, I know who I am. And for us as Christians, we know who we are in Christ. We are the Sons and daughters of the kings, we're servants of the high kings, we are chosen, we're made in the image of God, we're special, we're elect. Peter's gone through all of that. And because of that high calling, we are empowered to go low. So the second thing we need is humility, a willingness to go low. First is a tender heart, second is humility, and third is we have to be outdoors people. Okay, maybe not outdoors people, but let me explain what I mean. We have to be people who are willing to hunt. Let me show you. First Peter chapter 3, verse 11 says this. For those who want to exchange good for evil, let them turn away from evil and do good and let them seek peace and pursue it. The word pursue here actually comes from a Greek word, which means to hunt. And it's literally used in hunting expeditions and things like that. And I was thinking about life in mid-Michigan or the UP or wherever you're from. And I know that there are a lot of outdoors people. Some people are looking at me right now. There are people who are into the outdoors. There are people who are into hunting. And what that means is this. If you have someone who's really into hunting, probably they're going to go to great lengths to make sure that they ensure their success. They, for example, might pick out a parcel of land and they say, this is a good land or this is bad land. This is a spot I want to be because I'm told the deer are really big in this place. And then after they've got that piece of land, they might even plant certain crops like soybean or whatever else that deer eat and different things and try to attract in a healthy herd. And then once they have their herd, they're going to find out via their trail cams and other stuff where to go. And then they'll set their deer stand way up high in the tree and make sure they got everything situated we haven't even got the deer season yet 
And they're still thinking about it. Meanwhile, they're reading the magazines and watching the shows and getting all excited and talking to their friends. And then eventually the big opening weekend comes and the offices clear out and all the hunters are gone. And you know what they're doing. It's opening day. They're out there sitting in their stand. And then, of course, they'll sit in their stand for a really long time. They'll come home and they'll talk about it. I saw it or I didn't see it or blah, 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 blah. They pursue it actively and aggressively. And the idea here is that if you want to overcome evil with good, if you want to have peace with other people, it doesn't happen naturally. Normally, those hunters are not sitting at their breakfast table and all of a sudden the deer walks into the kitchen and flops over dead. just doesn't work like that. Instead, they have to go to great effort to find and secure this thing. And that's why they're trophies is because not everyone gets one and they're hard to do. But if you pursue it, you have that chance. So too with peace with other people. Peace with other people is not something that happens naturally. What happens naturally is conflict and disagreement and selfishness and sin. That's what we experience normally. And our normal response is either fight or flight. We either want to take it on and conquer it, or we want to say, no, never mind, it's not worth it, I'm not going to deal with it. But what the Bible is saying here is not fight, not flight, but exchange. Exchange good for evil. How? With, first of all, a tender heart. Secondly, a humble willingness, and third, a willing to pers- a, a willingness to pursue or hunt for peace. You actually have to chase them down. It's not enough for you to say, well, they offended me. Oh, I'll see if they come around and say anything about it. I'm just going to be mad at them until they do. I'll sit here all grumpy. They're not coming. It's actually on us that we have to take the initiative to pursue the other. That's what the Bible is saying here. It's on us to pursue peace. And then when you pers- and listen, we want this is really what we want because if it were not the case, then we would be in big trouble with Jesus. Because in reality, we call him our good shepherd because we were the lost sheep and it was him who pursued us. God hunts us down. We are his trophy, his workmanship, the one that he will put on display for his glory. And he will say, this is what I captured. This is what I bought. This is what I exchanged for my blood. Look at my beautiful bride. So number one, a humble, uh, tender heart. Number two, humility. Number three, hunt. And number four, hand it over. Number four, hand it over. First Peter chapter 4 verse 19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word here, entrust, I'm calling hand over just so I can have a fourth H. But the point is this, if you look, for example, again at Jesus, what you see is, you know, he could have called 10,000 angels, he could have blasted anyone who blasted him, but he never did. Instead, What he does is he turns the other cheek and trusts God the Father to vindicate him. So that when he is crucified and killed and destroyed and put in the grave, he's totally dependent upon God. And God who is faithful comes through and comes and raises Jesus from the dead. And that's when God the Father is vindicating him. And then God raises him to heaven to sit on the throne and reign uh, above all of heaven and earth. 
So God vindicates Jesus and Jesus, his whole life, trust God to do so. Now, let me show you something kind of interesting here about accusations. Jesus is the embodiment of truth and the best teacher ever. What did his accusers call him? A false teacher. Jesus is the one who cast out demons and the one who demons are like, oh, no, what do you want with me? And who did they say that he worked for? Beelzebub. Almost any time you have an accusation, it's more a picture of the accuser than the accused. And so instead of saying, I know you are, but what am I? What you do is you step back and say, actually, I'm a Christian. And what that means is I believe that God will judge. And he'll judge me and he'll judge you. And I don't want him to judge me for my response to you. So I'm just going to let him judge you. And I'm going to hand this over. I'm going to entrust it to him. And that's what Jesus did every single time. I can't even imagine how many horrible things they called him. I mean, we have the stuff that's written down. Right? We have the short form. Can you imagine all the terrible things they were saying to him as he was carrying his cross to go up that hill? He must have heard more profanity. I bet there were demons and devils lying in that street just unleashing as hard as they could. And yet, despite every single one of those things, what does the text tell us? Verse 23 of chapter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Jesus demonstrated for us how to do the exchange. He had a tender heart, a humble willingness... A hunt for peace. And he handed over and trusted his soul to God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. I know that's really hard. Okay, I know we're not going to walk out of here and be like. Woohoo we get to turn the other cheek. This is going to be great. But what we do when we don't have the strength. Is we reach for him who does. And we say okay. I feel like I'm out. But I know Christ and his forgiveness. Is enough to pay for the entire world. So when I need to forgive. I draw on him and pull from this exchange because he did what I could never do. What do I do when people treat me poorly? First Peter 3, 8. Do not repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless. Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus and what he did perfectly on the cross in ways that none of us ever could. And we know we can't in the big way, Lord, but we pray that you would help us in the small way. Each and every day when we have the opportunity to change good for evil, we pray that we would win. That we would win not by getting even, but by letting you do your job. Lord, help us to overcome evil with good. In Jesus' name, amen.